Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for Monday, August 2nd, 2021. My name's Show Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, we're probably going to talk it out, look at some of the things that are going on in this great wide world of everything around us. And at that point, we are going to... Not sports. Everything around us. <laughs> yep, because this ain't a sports show. Sometimes it is. Barely. Um, it, will be t- it will be today. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but what we're going to do is discuss these ideas, taking information and perspective, no matter where they come from, doing our best to evaluate everything fairly and in good faith. That's that's the brand here, good faith. And through this, we're hopefully going to be keeping ourselves and our lovely listeners adequately informed. Yeah, you know, we're, we're trying not to be cranks. We're trying not to be grifters. We're not trying to, you know, uh, be bad pundits. Maybe, the, you know, those are just words that sometimes feel like they have no meaning but yeah like there's there's probably some level of grift involved in all of this but hopefully not enough to make us grifters well well you know then you start getting into the bait of you know if you do anything that takes anyone attention is that a rude hmm but anyway um but yeah we're trying to do it in good faith we're trying to you know, suss out things, you know, and we realize that we aren't the only perspective that matters. Other people with other beliefs can look at the same facts and come to different conclusions. Um, You know, we're not on the ivory tower. We don't know all. We're not beaming down and uh, looking at people and being like, haha, your opinions are inferior. Although we may do a little bit of that sometime today, but, but within good faith, we're going to debate it on the, hopefully on the merits. We'll see. Um, but on that note, Evan, what, what's our first topic today? Our first topic today is going back to the Tokyo Olympics. We kind of touched on that last week, but we're going to revisit it for a specific case because something truly unprecedented has happened in the field of women's gymnastics. Superstar Simone Biles has withdrawn from almost the entirety of her slate of Olympic events after qualifying for finals, and she will not be competing. There's still a couple, we'll get to this, there's still a couple that she might try to get back in the mix for, but for the most part, her Olympics is ending rapidly without even her competing in some of these finals. So I'm going to go over what happened, and then Joe and I can get into some analysis commentary type stuff. So uh-huh. Simone Biles, uh, we, we got to take you back to the start of her career. So she began to compete on the international stage in women's artistic gymnastics in 2013. And at the 2013 world championships, she won her first gold medals. She won the floor exercise as well as the all around competition. And pretty much since 2013, The international community, as far as women's gymnastics is concerned, has been the Simone Biles show, really, like I Mm -hmm. said, ever since 2013. In gymnastics, perhaps the crowning achievement for a gymnast is to have a move named after you. When you do a new combination of skills on an event, 
that move is named after you. Simone Biles has done this four times. You know, most gymnasts will never get one move Mm -hmm. named after them. Simone Biles has four. There are four moves that are known as the Biles or some derivative of that. Um, Her crowning achievement came at the 2016 Olympics in Rio, where she won four gold medals. She won as part of the U.S. team. She won the all-around. She won vault and floor. Um, She was also in the final for the beam competition, which she fell off of. And even so, her score was high enough to earn her the bronze medal, despite completely blowing it. That's (laughs) That's how amazing her difficulty is and the rest of her execution was was that she could absorb a huge penalty and still finish in the medals so pretty much you know uh, you know not to say that they're not worthy or anything but the general american public doesn't follow gymnastics outside of the olympics and so even though she was already winning gold and had become the best gymnast at the time as early as 2013 after 2016 her fame and currency just skyrocketed she has been called the best gymnast of all time she has been completely overexposed in the media and i'm saying that from her perspective like i'm sure the media attention on her is just hellacious you know she's in commercials she's in promotional material for u.s olympics and she's also stepped up to take a huge mentoring role for the u.s women's gymnastics team she has a gym down in texas where she is you know encouraging other elite gymnasts to come and train with her for the good of the team so that has all been going on between 2016 and now now we get to 2021 we know the tokyo olympics were postponed they're supposed to be in 2020 but were postponed due to covid and this is the moment that is supposed to be the the last hurrah for Simone Biles as she finishes off the greatest Olympic career ever for a gymnast. It's kind of like um, in that Futurama episode where Fry is writing the opera on the holophoner with the robot devil's hands mm-hmm. and at intermission the little robot kid the tinny tim is selling papers that say uh, extra extra world's greatest play is half over you know like <laughs> it, it, it's kind of like an understanding that we already know that this is something amazing but we still get to enjoy it for a little longer and so in the media coverage leading up to Tokyo, it was just treated as a foregone conclusion. Simone Biles is going to dominate all of the events. The U.S. women are unbeatable. And it is just this intense pressure cooker of expectations leading in to the Tokyo Olympics. I mean, I would and say then, the coverage is about on par or, you know, the closest um you know, uh, kind of past experience is probably what would happen with uh, Michael Phelps. Like, yeah, it's yeah. like a similar dominance and, you know, household naming and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and I think that's a really good comp. The thing that I would say about Phelps is that Phelps kind of had what the 04 Olympics where he got onto the scene. And then in 08, he had the most dominant Olympic performance 
probably by anyone in history because he won what like eight gold medals in yeah. 08 something ridiculous and then by 2012 you know he had kind of cooled off so there was really only one olympics that was like the phelps show simone biles had her 08 phelps moment in 2016 and is coming back expected to do the exact same thing. Whereas Michael Phelps, I think a lot of people understood, mm-hmm. you know, he's getting older. He's not dominating the international competitions like he used to. But Biles, she has been since she started training again. And so, again, the, the reason why this is probably her last Olympics is because she's already, I think, 24, which is a ridiculously young it's younger than joe and i but once you get to your mid-20s it's tough to compete at the elite level in international gymnastics it's just sort of a reality of the sport especially in the united states one of the wealthier countries that can attract a lot of top athletes to gymnastics and develop them well it's sort of you know an 18 to 24 type game so for simone to come back at age 27 28 compete in another olympics bit of a long shot so anyway um we but but a good comparison so we get to tokyo and the first thing that kind of signals that something is wrong is the u.s women's team performance in the team competition qualifying round where they finished in second place and you might be saying what (laughs) second place that that shouldn't signal any alarms But keep in mind that the U.S. has not lost an international women's gymnastic competition since 2010. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So the fact that they were not in the lead coming out of the qualifying round was really pretty stunning. We saw the gymnasts making weird mistakes, falling, not being able to execute their skills, including Simone Biles. And it was just a bit of a... A cause for concern, I guess, because, like I said, it was so... It it had been a decade since we've seen a U.S. women's gymnastic team not leading the pack. And so that was at the qualifying round, but, you know, those scores don't matter. They still got a chance to redeem themselves in the actual team final. And Simone Biles' first event to compete in the team final is a vault. Simone Biles won the gold in vault in Rio... She has the names named, the moves named after her on vault. You know, she's just, this is one of her events. Mm-hmm. Should be a no-brainer for her. She's going to crush it and she's going to dominate it. And a couple of things went wrong. So for starters, she didn't perform her highest difficulty vault. She didn't do as many twists in the air, which is worth fewer points. Also, she was really shaky on her landing. And so she got a fairly low score on her vault and it was just so uncharacteristic for her because she is so consistent and so strong especially on the vault and at that point it was announced that simone biles would be withdrawing from the remainder of the team finals there there are four members now now the rule is four members and they take three scores to contribute to the team final. So she was basically saying that she's out and the other three are going to carry the team into this team final. And for a while, nobody knew what was going on. There was initially announced that it was a medical decision. And then there were reports that it didn't have anything to do with a physical injury. And nobody knew 
what was really going on. We just knew that Simone Biles was no longer competing for the U.S. team, and it was an absolute stunner. Joe, can you think of another time in Olympic history or sports history where the best in the world in the middle of a competition just says, see ya? Well, you know, I I would not think I am the best one to comment on this, but... The only time I can think of is I just uh, recently rewatched The Last Dance and something like the, I don't know, I think it was like the 94 Bulls, uh, Scottie Pippen sat out of the last play of the game because he wasn't going to get the last shot in the play and play. <laughs> but like, that's the only thing I can think of. <laughs> so there you go. It's it, we, we got maybe one relevant example of this in history. And... Without Simone Biles, the U.S. team went on to finish in second. They got the silver, cementing their first international loss in over a decade. Loss. <laughs> yes. Second place. What a horrible performance and a loss, right? Uh, we might as well pack up this whole American experiment. <laughs> We're done. If we can't win women's gymnastics, there's no fucking point. Yeah. But then we found out why Simone wasn't competing and why she had been forced to withdraw we we learned that the pressure of the expectations was taking a toll on her mental health and simone biles was no longer in a position where she felt mentally healthy enough to compete and so she made the agonizing decision to withdraw in order to a, you know, give her team the best chance to succeed, and B, also to correct her own mental health issue. And this has been, I think, a watershed moment for sport with an absolutely elite athlete taking a step back, admitting their mental health struggles and continuing to step aside so she also withdrew from the individual all-around competition as well as the uneven bars final and the vault final so she still has not yet withdrawn from the event finals in beam or the floor exercise um she'll have she'll probably know when you listen to this yeah (laughs) yeah yeah um this is ongoing so yeah the situation will likely be updated by the time this is hitting hitting out there and it is very likely that this could be the end of simone biles olympic career withdrawing due to mental health concerns so this has been like I said, causing a firestorm. There's been, as you can understand, a wide range of reactions, mostly positive, I would say. People commending her for taking her mental health seriously and trying to protect herself. But then also other people labeling her as a quitter or, you know, saying that she cracked or that she choked. Joe, what 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 do you think about all of this going on. So it, it, it is an interesting thing. I mean, um, I mean, it, really, this is a great scenario of that uh, quote you always say. It's 
it's the backlash to the backlash of the thing that's only just begun. Like, yeah, yeah. That's that's how I mostly saw it. I saw it mostly on Twitter of people reacting badly to the people who reacted badly to the Simone Biles news. But it it's it's um it's definitely a unique scenario because like Evan said and we said earlier that this is something that really hasn't happened before. But then there are also like some points that make this um unique. So um uh, Simone Biles released some like I forget if it was Instagram posts or like stories or something where you know she mentioned she has you know something in her mind called the the twisties which is gymnastic speak for kind of like losing your place while you're in the air um you know other sports have it you know there um you know there's like the thing where uh uh MLB pitcher just loses their mojo or, you know, stuff yep. like it's this. It's called this, the yips in, yeah, in baseball yips. and in some other sports called the yips. Yeah. Yeah. And all of it's a sudden, the thing that you've done since you were two, you can't do anymore. Right. Right. You just, you know, you just lose that mental capacity to do it. And that's one thing. Um, and, but, but the other thing is, is that like, you know, it's one thing to go through and try and, you know, go through while you have the yips and, you know, try and at least make the attempt. But, you know, if you're a baseball pitcher, the kind of stakes of doing a few more pitches while you're not like mentally there isn't relatively high, like even, you know, in the game or um, or for your personal health and safety. Whereas gymnastics is a dangerous sport. You know, when you're up there doing all those twists and in the air, if you fall down the wrong way with the intense velocities and forces on your body, you could really fall in a bad way and cause some real damage to your body. You know, I mean, you could even leading up to possibly being paralyzed, you know. Mm-hmm. And that's just a different world. Like, you know, if someone who was a top swimmer, you know, got the yips in some sort of way, like they couldn't just do it as fast. Like, you know, what's the worst that could happen? They just go out there and suck, you know, and, you know, mm-hmm. they just come in last. That's that's just and there's you know, it's not like they're going to drown. I mean, I don't think they will, but it's a you know lesser possibility but you know being able to go and do gymnastics and just kind of suck is is dangerous especially when you know she could go out there and do like real easy gymnastics moves but if she's going out there trying to do the top moves then that's a very dangerous game the world the moves that even healthy she's the only person in the world who can do them right exactly um and then another thing i want to say is that people are like oh she just quit you know she she just threw in the towel too early man this is like the culmination of her entire career like i think you know she can make that call it's not like she didn't want to go and work out one day. She's been doing it for so long mm-hmm. in her life. It's not like she got cold feet on just some competition. She has done all the competitions 
and gone and dominated and done them all. Like she and she knows what it's like to perform at the international scale. You know, like we said, she's done two Summer Olympics before and done one Summer Olympics. Yeah, Summer Olympics. (laughs) And and, you know, she's done all the international events The you know, she knows how to handle the stakes. It's just I would trust at this moment that she knows within herself that something is different this time, that it's like she knows how to handle the regular butterflies. She knows how to handle the regular pressure. She knows how to do it because, you know, even before this event, she was flaunting that she's the greatest of all time and really still is, even if she doesn't Absolutely. go through and compete anything at this Olympics. Um, so... Yeah, in some ways, it's like you would like to see her continue to walk the walk. But I would imagine, you know, this isn't this isn't normal scenarios. This isn't normal stakes. You know, there are sometimes in people's lives where, you know, sometimes you just need to help them and do a little push to do something. And it ends up being okay. She's done it all before. She's all she's done it all many times before, and she was still even doing it in the few weeks leading up to the Olympics. But something else has changed. And whatever that is, is up to her, you know, to figure out and up to her to decide of whether she competes or not. So, well, I think where the negative response is coming from is because we have such a distorted way that we talk about sport and really sort of try to unfairly use sport as a metaphor for life, right? There's this belief that you don't quit and you always go out there and you always succeed and it's just not possible. You know, sometimes you give it your best and it's not enough or sometimes you have to know when to walk away and there's nothing wrong with that but in the way that we have narrativized and mythologized sports in the past it doesn't account for that reality and i think that's the only reason why people are having such negative reactions you know this moment is being compared to uh carrie strug who is an old u.s olympian I, i didn't look up the year what year like you know the 80s or the 90s i don't know this this is making me sound bad um but anyway she had injured herself but still had to go out and do the vault for the team finals so that the u.s could win gold and she went out there and she nailed it and the u.s women won gold and it's considered this all-time great olympic event and a testament to people being courageous but That plays out so differently now, especially with what we know about the abuses that have occurred within U.S. women's gymnastics over the years. I think it's appropriate to reinterpret Carrie Strug as a young girl who was pushed to injure her body in the name of some vague sense of national glory. And I don't think it should be viewed as a heroic moment. I think the act of Simone Biles stepping away 
And knowing when enough is enough is what should be seen as much more heroic. And maybe I, I you know, in, in the interest of spitting out information and developing a story, maybe I wasn't clear enough in my tone and my words before, but let, let me unequivocally say that my heart goes out to Simone Biles and I don't question her character or ability in the slightest. And I I can, you know, it just, my, my heart is breaking for her knowing what, what what she's going through and another thing that i think is worth talking about is that this gymnastics is i think the perfect powder keg for a mental health crisis like this to develop you know there's on on one hand the extreme rigors of the sport which have been documented and then there is the added layer of the pressure coming in and being a part of the team that's been so dominant, being so personally dominant for so long. And then something else that we can't overlook is the amount of trauma that all of those girls who've had to deal with Larry Nasser have had to go with and still live with to this day. That doesn't go away no matter how many gold medals you win. And so it makes complete sense as to why a an event like this could cause a mental health issue severe enough to warrant withdrawal. Well, and it's also just so striking. I mean, that, I mean, one, it's one thing to be disappointed because, you know, we all wanted to see her do the impossible. It's very entertaining to watch. Um, But then also like, it's notable that, you know, she was able to do this probably only because she was like the greatest of all time, because she has built up her brand, because she is just so much on top of the game that she ends up having the power to make this decision for herself. Like um, who that person you mentioned before, uh, who Carrie Strug, yeah, Carrie Strug, you know. Um, I remember seeing something where, you know, yeah, it seemed like she had to do it. And, you know, if you're younger, you're more under the control of your coaches and you're put in this place where you'll have a whole lot of pressure. It's more likely that you're going to go through with something that you don't want to do instead of Simone Biles, who is on top of the game, completely independent uh, on herself. You know, she chooses her own coaches, you know, I'm sure. And. She acts as a coach to many of the other women on the team. Yeah, so she has more latitude to make decisions for herself that wouldn't be afforded to other other gymnasts. Um, You know, it's just it's it's unprecedented, but it's also that she gets to make this decision for herself because she has all that power relative to other gymnasts. So mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if there are more out there who would make those decisions in face of competition. But, you know, we we don't know their stories because they're more likely to be feel like they need to compete. And again, you know, like we put a lot of uh, we put a lot of stake into these events. But again, it's it's sports and and also just like. People saying the fact that, you know, she's just a quitter or whatever. 
She has dedicated her whole fucking life to gymnastics. <laughs> like, do you think she wanted to, you know, be, you know, on the sidelines? You know, she continued to train for this event. Do you think, you know, she was just, oh, I don't, I don't feel like it. You know, it's not like, I don't know. It's not like the stakes of, um, you know, being at a karaoke night and deciding not to go up and sing. Like, mm -hmm. this is different. This is something she has committed her life to. And, you know, for if for whatever reason she feels like she can't do it, she can't do it. Um, it's just. I don't know. It's just so crazy to me, all the backlash that, I mean, I guess it's to be expected because it is so monumental, but just so many people unwilling to give the benefit of the doubt to her. And, it, and you know, I can't help but feel that it's like it's also gendered because she's a woman taking time for her mental health. And there's mm -hmm. a whole bunch of men who are like, doesn't this woman just know you just need to run some dirt on it and and get on with it? It it just it just it, it yeah the a lot of people it just feels very toxic the criticism mm -hmm. and I I guess I've been reflecting a lot on this and trying to understand why hearing the story and experiencing the story has been affecting me in such a deep way to the point where I feel like I have to get on the podcast and talk about it. And I think when, when it really got to me is when I realized that this probably will be her last Olympics. And this very well could be the end of her career. And she's not going to go out in glory. She's going to go out you know, with these circumstances depriving her of the opportunity to achieve the success that she has been building for her whole life. And it's that sense of not sticking the landing, to borrow a gymnastics metaphor, that is absolutely gutting me. Because uh, for those of you who, who don't know, I'd imagine most of you do, I was a highly competitive speaker in speech and debate in both high school and college. And my freshman, mostly my sophomore year, I had a lot of success on the national level. And building to my junior year, I was really had a lot of expectations for myself that I was going to build upon that success on the national level. And I had a decent regular season. I was winning more tournaments. And I, I thought that things were building for me to have a successful postseason. But it didn't really happen. Um, at the state tournament that year, I, I did okay. I, I won three state championships. But I, I didn't get into the finals in extemporaneous speaking, which is kind of my, my signature event. I had won the event at the state level before. Um, and it really kind of messed with my confidence that I didn't do well specifically in that event. And I, I think I came down with a bit of the yips or the twisties. And 
the end game of that season of speech and debate was really brutal for me. We went to kind of our warm-up national tournament, and I just did not do well at all. I, I only got into out rounds of one of my events, which I had always gotten into multiple events in the past, so clearly a huge step down. I, I didn't make a final round in a speech event for the first time in my career at that tournament, and by the time we got to the real big showcase nationals, I was not in a good place. I didn't have a lot of confidence. My vocal delivery was off. I, I, I felt like the speeches that I had been given all year, I wasn't. I was no longer sure of how to, you know, say the words in a persuasive and effective way, and my energy was low, and uh, the scores reflected it. I had a horrible tournament i did not make any of the out rounds even though i had the previous year and most of my events were among the lowest placing at the entire tournament and then due to some internal team politics uh it was not in my best interest to continue in my senior year which meant that that was it that was yeah. my last experience and it was a really negative one. And after putting in all of that time and effort for just six years to do speech and debate, it's hard to have that hanging over you. That, that, that that's how you go out. You know, not everyone gets yeah. to be david ross and hit a home run in game seven of the world series for the cubs and then retire you know yeah it's great when that happens but it's but yeah, hard when you when and, you can't perform at something that's very core to your identity it, it's it's shattering mm-hmm. and and if it's the last time that you do it and you 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 don't do well you get to live with that for the rest of your life and it's something that i'm still working through and all of this is to say like now is a time for compassion you know simone biles put in eight years of grueling body reshaping physical exertion and that's just on the and national scale <laughs> yeah that doesn't even you're absolutely that doesn't even you know these these youth gymnasts start ridiculously early and so i think it's just hard for me to imagine someone else feeling that pain of not being able to go out on top and then to know for her that it is magnified by the gendered aspect and mo mostly by just the intense microscope that she is under and so the thought of a pundit or even just someone online adding to that pain by calling her a quitter or just being insensitive really 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 hurts and so like you said no matter what happens for the rest of these Olympics, Olympic Games, she is the greatest of all time. And 
in representing our country, she has always been an absolute model of the values that I hold as an American citizen. And I just hope she's okay. Yeah. Me too. So um, that that got uh, pretty emotional for me. I don't really have anything else to say. Yeah, um, I, I don't either. Um, or maybe just uh, fuck Pierce Morgan. I saw he had a bad take on it. Don't follow him too oh, hard, gosh. but you know, just kind of generally. <laughs> Do I even want to know what he said? I don't. I don't even really know what he said. I just saw <laughs> he had a like a come on Simone. And it's like, Pierce, what have you done ever? And then it's also that like proud tradition of like English journalists or I mean, to call Pierce Morgan a, a, a English pundits being like racist, but they don't want to like admit it. <laughs> mm-hmm. They're like, oh, we're just we're just giving them the rub. And it's like, well, you're this person's black and you don't seem to really give the rub to the white people. But OK, whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But yeah, so yeah, it's, uh, but hope the best for her. And I mean, really it's, it's her choice. It's not like you sign on to the Olympics and then you are compelled to do it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and also the U.S. it's, it's also like different from other countries where, I mean, the teams aren't strictly like paid by the country. It's all kind of amateur, so yeah, it's her choice. Mm-hmm. So I guess yeah. Here's here's my real concluding thought. Um, she did withdraw and walk away, but it's not out of weakness because to be able to walk away takes more strength than any of her detractors can possibly imagine. So. I'm- I mean, That's... yeah, her her whole fucking life was building up to this. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. it it's again, it's not just something willy nilly. <laughs> and even if it was something willy nilly, I guess it would be more to her studio <laughs> ability to say no. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, Joe. What else are we talking about today? All right, we're going to talk about another upbeat subject, um, the war in Afghanistan. <laughs> Woo! But it's actually, like, good news. Um, so, um, it's been interesting. So, what the war in Afghanistan, what is this? You know, we'll see people talk, oh, we've been at war for 20 years and all this kind of stuff. You know, we're just... Uh, a warring nation and all that stuff. And, you know, those types of things, you know, are warranted in some ways. We've been at war in Afghanistan since I believe it was 2001. 2001. Yep. 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 And we um, started a war in Afghanistan after the events of 9-11. Now, if you, you know, are... Evan and I's age, you were very young when all this started happening and, you know, have some vague ideas about what was going on back then and didn't really know. So just as like 
a quick primer on what happened. So 9-11 happened. Um, it was found out that it was perpetrated by members of Al-Qaeda, which it was a, and still is, a terrorist organization um, bent on doing terroristic activities. They were um, mostly headquartered in Afghanistan, where the Taliban, who was kind of the... <sighs> the Taliban is a complicated organization where they are kind of like a de facto government of Afghanistan, but are also a religious kind extremist organization. I mean, they were much more extreme back then, but they still are. Um, that in, you know, in the absence of a secular Afghanistan government that's not guided strictly by Islam, uh, the Taliban is there. So the Taliban, the local government governing group, essentially, of Afghanistan, was sheltering al-Qaeda within Afghanistan's borders. So we launched a war in Afghanistan to take down al-Qaeda, but also, in you know, in part, started to fight with the Taliban. And as far as starting the wars go, um, you know, we were at two wars for a little, you know, for a good long time after 9-11 because we started this war right after 9-11. And then later on, the Bush administration started the war in Iraq, which ended up being more, more in the forefront because... Um, the you know the justification of it was much more dubious where people these days you know will argue about the Iraq war very few people argue about the starting of the Afghanistan war the Iraq war was dubious to go after Saddam and his WMDs that he supposedly had the Afghanistan war was to go after al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden which was seen as justified at the time. So, and, you know, while people will talk about, you know, politicians' support for the Iraq war, almost nobody talks about and is a, uh, like, dividing line of whether they supported the Afghanistan war. So this is why the Afghanistan war started in 2001. And... But why has it stayed going until this time? The big Good reason, question. yeah, it's it's <laughs> it's one of the it's a boondoggle because um, one of the things that has been part of it is that um, Al Qaeda and also by proxy the Taliban have been pretty resilient in Afghanistan. Um, while Al-Qaeda is pretty much decimated, I mean, it is still a terrorist organization, but over 20 years, you know, the world has changed and you don't have to have a terrorist organization centrally located to be able to do things. It's kind of a worldwide um, organization that has pockets throughout the world. But then the Taliban is still effective because... I mean, it's it's something like in the roots of Afghan culture, like, you know, it, it seemed like if, um, you know, 
you know, X number of Taliban get killed in a fighting, you know, within a month, X new people will become members of the Taliban. Um, Mm. It has had this sort of staying power. So after we invaded Afghanistan, toppled the Taliban as the governing uh, body of Afghanistan and installed a new Afghanistan government that is secular, which is not beholden to uh, the rules of Islam like the Taliban is, or I mean, really their interpretation of Islam. And but the reason why we've still generally been there is one, there are still terrorist activities or cells that operate within the country that have been um you know, as part of the United States kind of general anti-terrorism bend. But then also because we want to prop up the secular government of Afghanistan because it, it the the rationale went is that if we left, the Taliban would take over the Afghan country again and would then once again harbor uh, terrorist groups within its borders that could be a security threat to the or would be a security threat to the United States. So we have had this long kind of meandering kind of just keeping on war in Afghanistan where officials have always said we're just about to turn the bend. You know, we're just about to decisively take down the Taliban. And like I said before, there are plenty of been times where um, they've taken down, you know, big parts of the Taliban and they just come up with new people being part of it. And this has gone on for a long time. And really also like, I mean, while we have been there for almost 20 years for like the last five or six years or so, we really haven't had a huge troop presence there. Um, the troops that have been there have been um, there to support the Afghan government as like a consulting uh, role. There haven't been active, uh, you know, fighting or missions within Afghanistan. I mean, but plenty of times where. Um, You know, some members of the Taliban or somebody will come and like shoot at a U.S. compound and then we'll retaliate and that kind of stuff. But but um, is it but we have actually started to withdraw and pretty rapidly uh, the there was a decision made last year um, with the Trump administration, actually, where. Um, Trump negotiated the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban for a exit out of Afghanistan where we were going to try and get out of Afghanistan by May but it was very um, filled with caveats um, you know conditions they call it and it's like well if the Taliban starts shooting at us then that can be cause for delay you know, if you start taking over territory, that could be cause for delay. You know, if you start doing all this kind of stuff, then that will be cause for delay and we'll just keep staying there. Well, so uh, the Biden administration came in, looked at that initiative and decided we're going to go full hog on this. Um, we're getting out and basically without conditions. Uh, Biden had mandated that 
our the American presence be out of Afghanistan by uh, September 11th, 2021. And it's already looking like most of the American presence in Afghanistan has already left with a, you know, a few weeks left to go. Yeah, to, to the Trump administration's credit, they left office in January with U.S. troop levels in Afghanistan, the lowest they had been since 2001 when they were getting all the troops into Afghanistan in the first place. And since April, yeah, the Biden administration has rapidly accelerated troop withdrawal. And it looks like they're actually on pace to get everyone out of there by August 31st, you know, the end of the month, uh, one month from the recording of this and the end of the month that you'll be listening to this. Um, So they're going to even beat that September 11th deadline. So, yeah, it's looking good. Yeah. And it's, it's been interesting because, you know, this is a war... That has been going on so long, you know, it's something that's used kind of in um, more left circles to kind of deride the U.S. government. I mean, it is a long fucking war, but there were also reasons why um, there there were some valid reasons why to stay in Afghanistan that is other than just terrorism. And a big part of that has been women's rights. Um, Afghanistan has been a place that historically has been very bad for women's rights. Um, when the Taliban was originally in control of the country before 2001, like women could not go out in public on their own and they had to wear the full covered headscarf, you know, just basically their eyes showing like, and, you know, they couldn't go to school. They were basically prisoners of their house unless their husband or some other male figure took them out in public. It, it was not a good situation. And they have, you know, over the years gotten a lot of, you know, a lot more rights and a lot more, uh, you know, abilities that they're able to do um, under the, you know, Afghan government. But, you know, there is a fear that once... Uh, you know, the U.S. leaves that the Afghan government is going to fall and won't be able to defend itself. And then the Taliban will come back and regain control and enforce these um, horrible gendered, you know, dictums. And it's not it's not great. And it's a very real possibility. Yeah, it's not great, and it is a very real possibility, but at some point, you kind of have to ask yourself a couple questions. Number one, is this our job? You know, do, are, we, are we the world police? You know, if, if this is going on in Afghanistan, not do we have a responsibility to try to do something about it, but do we have an active war ongoing because of this? I think that's that's the first question I ask. And number two can we actually solve it militarily if and and you you've been hinting at this joe i'm not trying to say that you're not aware yeah. of these points or you don't endorse these points but if we've been there for 20 years and the taliban is still strong enough to maintain a foothold in this country at what point do we acknowledge it as a huge drain on resources and and a, you know kind of a sink for us military presence and 
cut the losses and attempt to work through economic diplomatic means instead yeah so yeah. i think the time is now for the record yeah. i i think i think this is the time you know i think before was the time to get out um and, and we can talk more about the big picture legacy when we consider iraq as well but this has kind of been like you said something that liberals are always hitting on and especially I think for people of our generation who have grown up with this war and other wars in the Middle East that we've seen being really unfruitful, <laughs> you know, we've been banging the drum for mm -hmm. five, ten years, ever since we kind of came of age politically, to get out of the Middle East, to stop these forever wars. And, you know, of, of course there is the issue of certain quality of life things in Afghanistan backsliding with U.S. troop withdrawal. And I don't want to be as cavalier as I'm conveying with my tone about the real harms that could come from that. But on balance, I just think that the U.S. has accomplished what they could possibly accomplish through direct military intervention in Afghanistan. And I, I think it's a good idea to... Get out there. Get out. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the quality of life stuff, and especially for women and LGBT, you know, individuals in Afghanistan is a very real concern. But is it our responsibility to stay in Afghanistan for essentially for forever to uphold those? And I think that's bad. You know, it, it's a trade off, right? Because that is definitely bad for the idea of international sovereignty, right? The United States cannot be the one propping up Afghanistan. We can't or shouldn't be the ones propping up the international order. Yeah. Nation states need to resolve things internally. And I think we've reached, we clearly have reached the point where it, it just, there, there's, there's nothing more that we can accomplish there, I don't believe. Um, well, another and, note though, oh, go ahead. I mean, yeah. there's definitely, I mean, if you talk, I mean, I, it's not like I'm talking with military officials, but, you know, the people who do reporting on this say that, you know, military officials will say stuff like, oh, we just need a surge in troops and, you know, then we can decisively take them over. And, you know, we did stuff like that under Obama's years. Mm -hmm. um, there was a troop surge into Afghanistan and it ended up not working out. Um, and it's been interesting because this 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 war started under Bush and then Obama came in and was like, I, you know, he was, you know, very much ran on being anti-war in the, you know, Middle East. Mm -hmm. And, you know, whether, you know, some people will say that he sold out, but I think it's just really hard for someone who doesn't have the strong experience in foreign policy and wants to do right by it can easily be a little bit more overpowered by the standing players within it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, this happened, this seems to happen somewhat frequently 
with uh, presidents because, you know, one will come in, they say they want to do something. But, you know, if they haven't been enmeshed with it as you know one of their main topics of concern, then they can easily be swayed by other people who are more established in it and can sway their opinions. And I think that's what happened with Obama. You know, he didn't really have a whole lot of foreign policy dealings experience. Um, mm-hmm. So he was kind of pushed into keeping this war and accepting some of the arguments that um, that it would be better to do, you know, a troop surge and try and, you know, keep with the mission. Um, but then, you know, and then Trump came and, you know, the agreement that Trump got was kind of like, I don't know, the it was felt like it was kind of like part of Trump trying to put together legislative or, you know, just any sort of achievement by the end of his, you know, before the election. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I don't know if they were really going to go through with it because Trump administration was not very great on, you know, follow through on agreements like that, but it at least laid the groundwork. And then Biden came in and has executed on it. And I think it's interesting because, Biden is really the first person since probably George H.W. Bush to have the to be truly experienced within foreign policy before taking the the reins as, you know, commander in chief. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he um during the Obama uh you know, administration, Biden was oftentimes tasked with a lot of the foreign policy stuff because he had been a senator since the 70s. And, you know, senators um, and he was on the Foreign Relations Committee and all these types of stuff. So he had a lot of experience with foreign policy and he did a lot of that during the Obama administration. And so and then was able to come in and actually say no to the top brass and other members within the foreign uh, policy sphere within Washington to say, we're bringing the troops home. Like, we're doing this. I mean, I remember earlier this year, there was some, you know, um, I should have looked at this more. Oh, you know, Biden had um, ordered a missile strike on some compound in like Syria or something. And And basically every leftist took that, oh, nothing's going to be different here. Nothing's going to change. It's just the same old bad America. But, you know, Biden has effectively made it set in stone that the troops are coming home from Afghanistan. Well, Well, not necessarily home, but out of the country. Yeah. Well, let let me take that side because I I remember that event and I was one of them being like, well, this is fucking bullshit. This is the same thing that we've seen time and time again. And I I was upset by it. But, you know, in, in, in good faith, what did we know about Biden at that time? We knew that he was sort of, uh, you know, stodgy old guard type conservative guy who had voted for the war initially and, he really hadn't campaigned on doing anything this radical in his foreign policy. And so I, I will also admit that the the troop withdrawal speaks for itself and his overall policy 
has been one of attempting to disentangle American military interests from the Middle East. So, yeah, good job, Biden. (laughs) But I don't necessarily think that the signs were there that this was coming. Well, and... I mean, maybe to be a little too chill out for Biden, but it's like when you come into a new administration, um, there's a lot of things in motion at any one time. And this is not just foreign policy and military, but the whole damn thing. And I feel like, you know, maybe part of the backlash after that missile strike, because it very well could have been part, you know, that things were just kind of on a... Um, you know, they, the administration didn't update, you know, the directives for the military in the Middle East. And it could have been that this was just kind of part of the old administration's way of doing things and it hadn't been updated. Um, you know, still sucks that it happened, but it looks like the criticism, I mean, it really hasn't happened since then. And then also this big troop withdrawal is actually happening. And, you know, Biden has it's been striking because Biden is his son was in the military and fought in the war. I forget if it was the Iraq or the Afghanistan war and it really affected him. And, you know, Trump didn't have it, you know, did not serve or have any um, immediate family who served. Um, George Bush did not have, Um, I mean, he was in the National Guard for a little bit, but that was before that they were deployed. And and, you know, he did not have any direct family members who had served. So like it took Biden knowing the effects of this war. And I think a big part of his rhetoric around this has been, you know, it is what we're doing in Afghanistan worth more American lives. And his resounding answer is no. And, mm-hmm. and, and, and it's, I think it's good. And I hope that it continues and that we don't, um, you know, come back. I mean, I think um, the United States is still going to reserve the ability to fight, you know, terrorists if they come up, but um, you know, that's, that's a much more limited scope and, just kind of seems to be how the whole general United States foreign policy is going instead of waging wars is that just kind of keeping very close tabs on all like terrorist or extremist groups and, you know, to make sure they're not brewing on anything. Um, but, you know, that comes with a lot of technological advances that come over the years. You know, you don't to take on terrorism, you don't need to you know, wage a war in a you know remote area, you really just need to like be able to intercept WeChat <laughs> messages. <laughs> um, Which so, of course that technology didn't exist twenty years ago. Yeah. So the the game has changed, but it's good that we're ending the Afghanistan war. Um and I think it's also a reasonable question to ask, why is this happening now? Or how is this happening now? Now, Evan, I want to ask you to imagine a scenario, and I guess the listeners okay. as well. What <laughs> if Obama announced in 2010 
that he was going to bring all the troops back from Afghanistan. Hmm. He would be accused of wanting the terrorists to win because he was secretly a Muslim terrorist. That would be part of it. But it would be wall-to-wall news. Like, oh my gosh, think of all the Fox News graphics that there would be. (laughs) And, you know, it would have been at the forefront because um, terrorism still in 2010 was still at the very, you know, I mean, not the most pressing issue for everybody, but still a major topic of concern for a lot of Americans. Today, that is not the case. Um, We are not very scared about terrorists. And if they are, it's not about that type of terrorist. Um, There have been fears about, you know, shooters in the United States. Um, On the right, there's more concern about Antifa. And so it just ends up being that the fear of terrorism isn't that high. And because of that, we get to, there's this model that an idea of the United States government that has been kind of floating around. um, One of the main proponents of it is Matthew Iglesias. And it's this idea, it's called secret Congress, where I mean, this is we're talking about the presidency, but the same kind of basic principle applies where in secret Congress, you know, we, you know, regular Congress, we know it can't pass big things. You know, there's no chance for, you know, the Democrats to get through health care and all this kind of stuff because these issues are high salience. The Republicans don't want them to win and it's controversial. So the Democrats, Democrats can't, you know, marshal support for it. But that's in a high salience issues. What about like investing in our technology companies and basic research? And that's something that actually passed earlier this year. Um, I think it was originally called the Frontier Act. And, you know, it was not as did not end up passing in its most ambitious form, but it nonetheless passed with like very high bipartisan support. And, you know, why did this pass? Well, because none of you knew it was happening. Um, <laughs> there were not Fox News and CNN Chirons about it. You know, there it was something that kind of slipped underneath. And I think the same thing is happening with the Afghan troop withdrawal. Biden both had the will to stand up to the foreign policy regime in Washington and say, bring them back. But then he also had the cover to be able to do it because nobody's really looking at the the war in Afghanistan as like a topic to win back voters or get them riled up or anything like that. So it's just kind of given him cover to be able to actually do it because nobody's watching and he's also capable of doing it. You know, it's interesting because on my drive to work, there's a sign that has popped up along the road, just like a little yard sign that says, all it says is September 11th, 2001, never forget. And I wonder if that's like a one person crusade to protest this troop withdrawal. Like, Uh hey, we're not done yet. We got to we got to fight this war forever. Um, But 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 to the larger point, no, it makes a lot of sense, because when. 
you don't have Tucker Carlson yelling about something every night on Fox News or however often Tucker's show. Is he is he a nightly yeah. guy? Oh, fuck. That's horrible. Um, but anyway, <laughs> um, then you don't have the constituents who are sending angry letters saying, oh, if you vote for this, we're going to primary you. Da, 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 da. And so then the legislators don't feel afraid to actually try to work towards some sort of deal on it or i guess for the presidential level you know biden and his team know that it's not something where he's going to have to absorb a huge amount of blowback and it's not going to uh, let's go back to the concept from why we're polarized negative partisanship if the topic is not in cable news it is unlikely to stoke that negative partisanship once something is accomplished and so is that the greatest way to run an executive or legislative branch in the ideal probably not but it's nice to know that there are some things that we can make progress on right right i mean this this also just goes to speak to um what was another potential topic for this week, which is um, the infrastructure bill that just yeah. it hasn't passed, but it's moving forward. It um, looks like it's going to. Yeah, because it ended up, um, you know, the Senate. Oh, my gosh. I'd, someday I'll learn how the Senate works. But <laughs> <laughs> basically, they just do a whole bunch of votes on any one thing. And then there ends up being a final vote. Um, and. Normally, the filibuster will be used to even stop something from starting, like not even the final vote. And they Republicans did not filibuster the moving forward with this bill. And even 17 uh, Republicans joined in to vote to move forward on the bill. Mm-hmm. And it, but it was also interesting because it was basically... Um, you know, the Romney kind of responsible Republicans or whatever they want to call themselves, you know, your Murkowskis and Collins, they voted for it. And along with some Mitch McConnell aligned Republicans, because Mitch voted to move forward with it as well. Um, but basically every Republican presidential hopeful voted against moving forward with it. Mm. Um, so, but it's moving forward nonetheless. Um, and that's because nobody really gives a shit about docks and dams, you know, <laughs> like um, there, there isn't a whole lot of culture war that can be ginned up about it. I mean, the week that this is happening, more people were talking about, you know, Simone Biles, more provocateurs were talking about Simone Biles than they were talking about. I don't know, the bloat of American government and, you know, what have you with the infrastructure spending. Um, And it should be noted that this infrastructure bill is not like the utopian one that initially came out, like the whatever trillion dollar thing. This is sort of a, a compromise redraft where mansion and cinema and everyone has has had their finger in the pot well yeah and it's it's more slimmed down which i'm not saying it's bad you know it's something it's gonna gonna get money flowing to american industry i'm not you know positive on balance but just i think it's worth noting because there are elements of that initial infrastructure bill which 
did inspire culture war. Like, oh, how are we going to classify this as infrastructure? And do we really think that childcare is a thing? But those those things aren't as prominent in the bill that is succeeding. Well, let me put it this way. So the by the, the infrastructure talks have, I mean, just because of the politics, have been on a kind of true track or two track way because there has been the bipartisan infrastructure bill that has been worked on. And then Democrats have also been working on a separate budget reconciliation version of infrastructure that they hope yeah, to that also they could pass. do. Yeah. Without the Republican support. Yeah. So the bipartisan legislation has basically been doing the secret Congress model, whereas stuff in the, um, you know, in the reconciliation bill have been subject to culture war things. But, you know, I almost wonder if doing the budget reconciliation version is almost like a red herring <laughs> to help draw away from, uh, you know, the bipartisan infrastructure deal. Like, what if they were just doing the bipartisan infrastructure deal without the budget reconciliation version? I mean, one, I think you would have a lot more people on the left like ragging on it, but then also you would be doing a lot more culture war stuff, whereas the budget reconciliation version, whether it passes or not, is able to absorb all of that criticism and culture war stuff while still doing something productive. So, And it's also anchoring, right? You, you always, whatever you set the first ask at is what sets the goal for the rest of the negotiation or what what have you it's it's the same thing that fox news does when they call themselves fair and balanced it says well this is fair and balanced so that anchors that idea to the viewer's mind and then anything else is pulling in a different direction so here the big broad infrastructure bill was the first thing that the democrats came out with so that's the first offer that's what is now psychologically anchored in people's mind so now these slimmer packages seem much more reasonable. Yeah. So, so we're still somewhat, I mean, again, with legis legislation, I never really know. This may just be the beginning of it still, or it may be passing tomorrow. I don't know. Um, but it has been opened up for amendments and, you know, revisions and hopefully, you know, and also, I'm very excited at the possibility of pork barrel spending coming back. Um, a lot of people liken this to the height of uh, corruption in Washington, where members of Congress would only vote for things if their individual district got something out of it. And, you know, there'd be cases where it's like, oh, yeah, here's a child health care bill. And then also snuck into it is funding for a bridge in Tallahassee. But um, I have come around the other end on pork barrel spending because they got rid of it for like the last decade. And um, legislation. No, no one will vote for anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we should want to be able to do things at a higher principle way. But um you know, I guess sometimes greasing the wheel is all right. And that means, you know, um, individual districts get their own little projects done, which I guess is also good for the American experience as well. Like, 
I, I, I'm on, I, I'm of both minds on it. You know, it's just sort of the idealist versus the realist in you because on the ideal level, shouldn't legislators just vote for legislation that's going to be good regardless of whether or not they get their fucking bridge money? Yeah, mm-hmm. that would be great. It would be awesome if we could run Congress that way. And I don't see anything wrong with trying to strive for that. But then there's the realist part of it where we took it away and we saw what happened. And like you said, what it meant was that we didn't get anything. And so that's also no bueno. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, we, you know, it's like, um, <laughs> I don't so know. So if we it, get it, to have it, our good legislate, yeah. It's like if you trained your dog using treats whenever they did something good and then they were like, okay, just now no treats never. And your dog starts acting up like, you know, it, it it feels like something like that, you know? I mean, hopefully you would think that everything could work without, you know, the pork barrel, but I, I guess the pork barrel just helped grease the wheels of everything. And, you know, since we've been at a deadlock for the last decade, a little greasing may be nice. Yeah, pork barrel, what it does is it creates worse legislation, right? There's no getting around that. If you are trying to do thing a but you can't get the votes for it without adding riders b c d e f g h that's just going to inherently be a less logical piece of legislation that contributes less to good governance but if the difference if you're having to choose between getting a done with all the other crap attached and never doing anything that changes the calculus yeah, <laughs> you know yeah. if the i i it, it seems like most of the time the choice isn't actually between well we're just going to do a versus this corrupted a through k scenario it's the choices between do we get the main thing plus all the bullshit or do we just get nothing yeah and it's, it's not yeah. the dichotomy of um do corrupt governance or do uncorrupt governments? It's it's a it's do you, like do you a do little bit of corruption versus complete gridlock. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you do governance or no governance? You know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I don't. You know. You know this may make it seem like in the past ten years Congress would work more effectively with pork barrel fully, and I don't think that just is the sole explanation. But is it, it's at least part of it, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Even if a coalition is able to steadfast, you know, it's, again, just a, a little grease on the wheels can help. But but anyway, we've gotten off track here a little bit. But good <laughs> conversation nonetheless. Yeah. So all of this is to say that the Afghanistan war is coming to a material end. You know, I don't know if we'll necessarily have a, you know, there's no treaties to sign. There's no surrender to do. There is no, I mean, it's kind of been vague. So there is not even like the last day where, you know, like Mm -hmm. what happened in Vietnam, you know, where you have that, you know, those pictures that were very, striking of like the helicopter leaving the embassy in Saigon and people like trying to grab a hold of it. I mean, just, um, it's just kind of ending with a whimper and, you know, I, in some ways I think that's 
fitting, you know, like, yeah, it was it. It was a war that was justified in the beginning, but over the years mutated and just kind of became a status quo, which was bad. And now it's coming to an end. And, you know, I mean, to really, I mean, this war did have real costs. I mean, both for dollars sake, but then just also a real human cost. Um, and, you know, I think it's worth, you know, trying to remember and honor those, um, you know, troops who died or were horribly, um, you know, affected by this war. And it's, you know, some people will say, well, if we just left without winning, then it was all in vain. And it's like, well, you know, we may have gone in with the right intentions, but didn't have a true path to victory, whatever that was defined. And we should just use the deaths and the uh, effects on these soldiers, these veterans, as a reminder of what the cost of going to war is. War is, you know, a country waging war is essentially, I mean, at least within the U.S. context, is saying that we must do evil acts that in order to um, take out people who are doing even more evil acts and to correct that. And it seems like within the Afghanistan war, that the evil acts that we have done have not come out to have not ended up creating the desired effect of Mm -hmm. what the war was waged for. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and I want to kind of loop this in because um, I'm, I'm glad that we've had so much focus on Afghanistan because it has been you know, just this unbelievable quagmire for 20 years. But I think there's also, when we talk about Biden's vision for the Middle East in general, a really good connection to what is going on in Iraq as well. So we've mostly been out of Iraq since 2011, but not quite, you know, (laughs) we, we, we can't seem to ever get out of there completely. But recently Joe Biden has stated his decision to get U.S. troops out of Iraq as well by the end of the year. So not quite the same time frame as what's going on in Afghanistan. It's largely a symbolic move, but nonetheless, I think it's an important part of this Biden concept of finally removing troops from the Middle East and ending these long engagements that, like Joe has been saying, have long outlived their utility and on balance have produced some pretty negative consequences. And so I know that we've got a bit of a long show this week, but I do want to ask you, Joe, how do you think that this development in Biden's strategic thinking impacts his legacy and about how we talk about him and will remember him as a president? Mm -hmm. Well, it's still early to say, just a caveat, but it's, You know, I just had this thought looking at it and Joe Biden is one of the few officials or, you know, politicians or members of government, whatever you want to say, 
who's still around in government and in these decisions that was actually instrumental to starting this process. Um, you know, so he was there and being part of the foreign relations committee, you know, he moved, helped move forward to start these wars, this involvement in the middle East. And since then we have had other people running it that weren't really involved. I mean, Bush oversaw it for his, the rest of his two terms. Obama came, but he was not, you know, while he campaigned against it, he was not there for, you know, he was not instrumental in starting it. And um, Trump came in and he wasn't in government. President was his first governmental position. So it's interesting to see that Biden, it, it's almost like he could have a unique perspective on it where he was there when it started and was understanding of the situation that we went there for and can have more of a mental clarity of what were, you know, what was wrong and why it's good to pull out. Um, because it's like, wow, we, I was there starting this, you know, all this was going on and like, it's still going on and it's not really doing it for the reasons that were justified. It's time to come out. At least I, you know, that's like a, an imagining of what's going on. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not like having to catch up with the issue. He is not having to relearn, you know, he's not having to rely exclusively on new foreign policy advisors that come with the national security department. You know, he has the experience. So if he's able to pull out of these wars, then it will, I mean, it will mark a turning point, um, but it'll really depend on how we go forward after this. I mean, it's good that we have pulled out and it will be good on the Biden's legacy, at least people from the left that he pulled out of uh, the Middle East. I mean, although we have, you know, as far as our occupations have concerned, you know, we still have bases in friendly countries. We are still able to conduct airstrikes and we are still able to, you know, have forces mobilized to take care of terrorist cells. But but. In general, the occupations seem to be ending of these governments. And, you know, maybe it takes Biden to show that the United States has come around on the issue um, because he's come around on the issue. That was a very well-reasoned and measured response. So now it's time for me to give the sensationalistic one. Hey, <laughs> I think if Biden can finally get us out of the Middle East, it will be probably the single greatest accomplishment of his presidency. And I would love to be proven wrong. I'd love to see him kind of do something even even bigger and better. But like I hinted at earlier, we have been beating the drum to get out of here. At least, you know, I have mm -hmm. <laughs> in my entire political adult life. And... It is just something that signifies, like you said, uh, the potential for a new era of America's role 
in the world. It, it's looking like vaccine hesitancy is going to prevent Joe Biden from taking any really huge accomplishments away from COVID and COVID recovery. I don't think he has the political capital to do anything really truly radical in terms of reducing economic inequality, advancing racial justice, or fortifying healthcare as a human right. I'm, I'm pessimistic about those things. But if he actually extricates us from military conflict and ongoing military engagement in Afghanistan and Iraq, that is a huge positive in this one voter's opinion. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, and, you know, there is still the chance that, you know, this could become a, you know, our withdrawal could be a national security threat to us in the future. And it could, you know, there is a good chance it will... Um, create some destability in the region, but it looks like the Taliban is looking towards China for some coverage and some authority. But at the end of the Absolutely. day, and, I, I and, mean, and we might not even successfully complete the withdrawal. You know, these are just timelines and and projections and intentions. But nonetheless, yeah. But but you also got to ask, is it the United States responsibility to, you know, provide brute force to provide stability in the Middle East? Precisely. And, and I just generally think the answer is no, um, because, you know, that, that there, there's just so many things that could be its own podcast episode. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, why, you know, we do not necessarily have the right or should do something like that. Um, It's up to them, you know, and, you know, it's just and hopefully, you know, we could save the money from doing this. I mean, it just doesn't feel like a very wise investment. Um, Like I said, we have a much more advanced national security apparatus now, so we're better able to handle those threats and doesn't require a ground invasion um Mm -hmm. so i think it's good and it's a good development and if it if it keep i hope it keeps on withdrawing you know um you know there it has been said that you know it's like well if you attack us we'll still attack you but it's not like if you attack us we'll attack you and then stay another year you know it's it's, (laughs) yeah i mean any time that we get attacked we're gonna you know have a response that's not right that's not a variation from anything that's ever happened yeah but um it seems to be conditionless you know we're we're pulling out and it's gonna happen because like i said you know like we said before we've we've really done this for a long time and it doesn't seem like anything we're going to do is really going to change things uh, or create an, an experience where we can claim victory and leave on those terms. It just seems indefinite at this point. And it's time to end the indefinite war. Very good. Very, very strong way to end that segment. Yeah. Now sponsored by Squarespace. Have you ever wanted to make a website about a war? Um, no. <laughs> um, Evan, you have anything else you want to say about this? No, but I, I want to do. I want to do the end segment. 
Ooh, end segment. This is even a surprise for me. What's up? The the Stephen Avery development. We can do it real quick because oh. there's not actually a lot. But oh, I didn't actually research enough for it. <laughs> I could, I mean, I could just explain what happened real quick. Basically, um, so yeah, here, here's our end segment. End uh, segment. It's back. It's yeah. back for one week only, unless we think of an end segment next week. Um, so Stephen Avery was de- was denied another new trial. Basically, Stephen Avery, the the main character or the um, <laughs> the main focus of the Netflix series, Making a Murderer. Yes, yes. He was convicted in 2005 of the murder of Teresa Halbach. The show raised significant questions about the police neutrality investigating the case and holes in the police narrative. But to this day, Avery remains incarcerated and numerous legal attempts to get him freed have failed. The most recent thing was there was a motion filed by his hot shot and way overconfident attorney Kathleen Zellner um, trying to get him a new trial basically on evidentiary grounds they have a new sworn statement from someone who is attesting to have seen Bobby Dassey who is the brother of Brendan Dassey who was convicted along with Avery um, who's claimed to have seen him on the Avery compound around the time of Teresa Hallbach's murder also this person who has testified to this says that they called the Manitowoc police department to report this information on that day, but the police department blew it off. So the, the argument was that the police in not investigating this other lead of Bobby Dassey failed to do their job in prosecuting Stephen Avery and therefore Stephen Avery should get a new trial. And this was not successful because the appeal process is not about just like throwing out other theories as to what happened. And the appellate decision specifically said, we're not trying to make a ruling on the case. You know, the jury came to their conclusion. We're not upholding it or contradicting it what really is at issue is the narrow availability of a grounds for an appeal and here the appellate rejected it on the basis that zellner never expressed why this information was not available at the time of avery's most recent appeal in 2017 Mm -hmm. and so absent that significant uh change in the case between 2017 and 2021 the appellate did not find adequate new ground to retry the case. And so the appeal was denied sort of on a procedural ground. So that's that's what happened. Yeah, that the whole world of um, appeals, uh, you know, it doesn't quite work like the way everybody thinks it does. Um, like sometimes you can get an appeal on like new evidence that otherwise wouldn't have come around like you know, DNA was historically the big one, but it's just like, well, if if it just turns up that this like small piece of evidence didn't turn up there, it has to be pretty significant for them to grant a new trial. And even then, most new trials aren't granted on evidence based, um, you know, appeals. It's based upon procedural. So like the lawyer did something wrong or the prosecution did something wrong, you know, that is 
against the procedure of doing these types of cases. And that is oftentimes the only real way that someone gets a real rehearing of their case, you know, because basically for it to be overturned, like very rarely does appeal say, um, you know, oh, because of this, this person is completely free and is deemed not guilty. You know, most of the time they're just given a new trial if it's overturned. And so it's just that there's still a long way to go for Stephen Avery. And who knows if it's even going to happen. Um, that, that's kind of where I'm at at this point is that of, of course, the Making a Murderer documentary series presents a compelling case for his innocence. And certainly there was police misconduct. Or and I, I would like to caveat that just it at least presents enough deniability that there is a reasonable doubt. But that's kind of where I'm guilt. going with this yeah. is that, that, yes, they certainly do a good job of poking holes. But with as much exposure that he has had, if there was really a legal case, not sort of like a, oh, hmm, I'm thinking about this, that doesn't add up case, but an actual legal case to get him freed, don't you think some lawyer somewhere would have done it by now? Yeah. I, it just kind of seems like any any new times that this pops up in the news from here to eternity are going to just sort of be false alarms, you know? Yeah. Like, I think we've seen the development that's going to happen. Uh, yeah. I mean, I mean, I feel like it would take like a new generation, a new like breakthrough, some, something new that isn't just rehashing all the points that there already are. Um, mm -hmm. it would take something else, something greater. And, and I think the biggest part of it is that, um, it's hard to build a case for somebody else. I mean, it, it's just the, the way out, I, I mean, this end segment is getting longer than I, you know, <laughs> um, we had originally pitched it, but, but the way I always felt about the making a murderer, deal is that like it it's like you have a bunch of puzzle pieces like together and it looks like that they work together and you you know you just haven't put them all together but you know laying there on the table it's like oh this looks like a puzzle there this must be you know paint out to be a picture and then you start to try and put the puzzle pieces together and it doesn't actually make anything they don't fit together but they all look like they're of the same puzzle. So, you know, it, mm -hmm. you, you just have the feeling that they go together, even when you try and, you know, rationally put them all together, it doesn't quite work. So like, it looks like Avery did it, you know, there's all these different pieces of it. And, but then also some central parts of the case where, the alleged police misconduct and handling of evidence and discovery. I mean, those things are, I mean, are proving tough to litigate in this case. And unless there is a real breakthrough on litigating that, then it doesn't really seem like there's a real chance to um, get a new trial 
for Steven or get his case thrown out, you know? Mm-hmm. It basically hinges on the police misconduct, um, you know, theory, which I believe is pretty strong in this case. But if that is not accepted, then it's hard, you know, there there really isn't a whole lot more case. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's probably about the balance of it. Yeah. And then even, you know, shit, Brendan Dassey's case went all the way up to like the uh the, the Supreme Court. They well they declined to hear it, but Yeah, you know, so it went up right before that and um yeah, they they decided that he was still within his faculties to make the decision. I mean, it wasn't a unanimous decision on I believe it was uh I think it was a three panel you know, judge jury and, um, but still is just, um, yeah. If Brendan Dassey couldn't get relief from this, which his, yeah, his was, is more compelling. Yeah. Yeah. Way more compelling. I mean, like hell, even in Stephen Avery's case, they were like him alone did it. And then they didn't Brendan's case. And it was like, but actually, Brendan was there. <laughs> it's like it's like when a movie makes a sequel and they come up with this new character that they put in in the in the background of like all the stuff that happened in the first movie, but wasn't a character in the first movie. Like some George Lucas shit. Yeah. Re-editing the old the Star Wars movies. Yeah. Oh boy. Everyone knew R2-D2 for, you know, 300 years. It's always been R2-D2. It's yeah. always been Brendan Dassey. Yeah. It's always Brendan Dassey. So I think. It's uh, always Mr. Poopy Butthole. Yeah. So we've had a pretty long episode here. Evan, any last things I ask again? Yeah. Um, you know, we're we're thinking about Simone Biles and we're, we're hoping she's all right. Yeah. I hope she is. I bet she'll be all right, but who knows? Maybe, maybe we'll see the last dance part two in like 30 years where, where it's Simone Biles and she goes to the next Olympics, but who knows? But she's just drinking a whiskey like Michael Jordan. Oh my gosh. And I also like how throughout the series, uh, present day, Michael Jordan has different levels of facial hair, you know? But <laughs> something I picked up on. But on that upbeat note, um, we'll take we'll we'll end this episode. We would like to thank you for listening and thank Anthony Hish for the music. But anyway, my name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed. <laughs>